Hey folks, Joyce Vance here. Preet is out this week, so today I'm joined by a special guest co-host, my friend Barb McQuaid. As many of you know, Barb served as the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. She's now a CAFE contributor, a law professor at the University of Michigan Law School, and a legal analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Barb and I discussed the latest developments from the January 6th committee, including new details about Trump's plans in the lead-up to the attack. Meanwhile, the committee revealed that Trump tried to contact a witness in the investigation. And the committee issued a subpoena to the Secret Service for text messages from January 5 and 6 in 2021, which seemed to have been deleted. Barb and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, Try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as part of the insider community. Listen, let's just jump right in to this hearing that took place, the seventh hearing. I will brag and say I managed to fit my vacation into the one space where there wasn't a January 6th committee hearing in June and July. So I feel a little bit victorious about that. But I came home to hearing number seven the next day. And I'm I'm pretty eager to hear your thoughts about it. First off, before we get into specifics, what was your overall impression of hearing seven? Was it a hit or a miss? Oh, I think every one of these has been a hit. There is so much compelling testimony that comes out of each of these. And, you know, they're scripting these like a Netflix series, kind of teeing up next week's episode at the very end, especially when Liz Cheney comes up with that nugget about a a White House employee getting a a call from Donald Trump. So I thought lots of great nuggets uh, once again and continuing to advance the narrative. How about you? You know, I really agree with that. The committee has been skillful. There's a lot of material. And you and I have faced this issue in trial where you have so much evidence. And the question becomes, how do you turn it into a manageable package that the jury can use and weigh against the elements of proof that the prosecution has to prove? It's a little bit different in this committee setting, right? Because they're trying to convince the court of public opinion, which is different. Yeah, and I I think one of the challenges in any forum, whether it's in court or in this committee hearing, is not overwhelming people with too much. And that's a real challenge. I can remember some, you know, big cases just, you know, in terms of length that I've handled. And sometimes it means leaving out, you know, what's the phrase they use for writers? Sometimes you have to kill your darlings, you know, but I love this, these words, like, you know, you know, cut, cut, cut. Um, We had a, um, an assistant U.S. attorney who was referred to as Buffy the witness slayer because she had this really (laughs) great ability to come in and ruthlessly cut, like, what's this witness going to say? Well, this witness is going to talk about this meeting where, but now, unimportant, unnecessary, but but it's so great. The witness said, blah, blah, blah. You don't need it. Get rid of it. (laughs) So there may be some really good things that are ending up on the cutting room floor, but I think they they have to keep it manageable, understandable. If there's too much information, it can just be too overwhelming. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And and some of the specifics that made it in, I think, demonstrate just the quality of the evidence the committee has been compiling. For instance, the unsent Donald Trump tweet, right? I will be making a big speech. Please arrive early. March to the Capitol after. Stop the steal. The fact that this is a tweet that is unsent is just a huge wow factor for me. It put 
all of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony in context, this notion that there was a plan in advance for Trump to go to the Capitol. So play that out. What do you make of that information? Boy, I think they are moving towards something I had not thought they could do before, which is possibly linking Trump to the violence at the Capitol. And if so, you know, you, you could imagine getting to the point where you could add him to the seditious conspiracy indictment, which is the use of force to oppose uh, the lawful execution of the laws. So if there's force that delayed that vote on January 6th that was intended and caused by an agreement that Trump participated in, he could be charged with that. You know, there are other things about, I think the, the phrase Liz Cheney used was, the evidence confirms this was not a spontaneous call to action, but a deliberate strategy by Trump. So you know, that that unsent tweet is one of them. And then you've got, you know, lawyers for the organizers saying that, you know, we want to switch the date of our rally from one date to another. The president's planning to have a, another stage outside the Supreme Court building, which, of course, is right behind the U.S. Capitol. We've got Ali Alexander, who said on January 5th that he expected Trump to order his supporters to go march to the Capitol. That was revealed. And then, of course, there's the Steve Bannon, all hell's going to break loose tomorrow. So, there's, uh, you know, something afoot here. It doesn't seem like this was just a spontaneous thing. Trump's speeches got edited as well on January 6th at the last minute to talk about this. And he ad-libbed this march to the Capitol. But, you know, contrary to what Mark Meadows said, that it was he was speaking metaphorically, I, I think that they are proving otherwise. So this is exactly why I wanted to talk to you today, because that was literally where I wanted to head. This notion that we've got Two different militia groups indicted for seditious conspiracy, which, of course, requires this intent to use force. And the question that I had after hearing seven was, if you're at DOJ, does all of the new evidence that you've heard, combined with Trump's awareness that there were some weapons in the group, does it push you to investigate Trump for seditious conspiracy? And you cut straight to that, which I think it's interesting that, that both of us thought about that. You know, one of the defenses people have played out for Trump in that area is that the speech on the ellipse was First Amendment protected speech. And the question that I now have is whether this information changes any viability for that defense, because it's increasingly possible the evidence suggests it's not a spontaneous call to action that happens on the ellipse. It's planned violence. And that, I think, means that any sort of a Brandenburg versus Ohio defense, which listeners of this podcast are familiar with, this notion that it's First Amendment protected speech if you don't have the immediate ability to incite violence, that sort of goes out the window with everything that we hear. You know, you talk about the Ali Alexander evidence. There's also Kylie Jane Kremer's text to Mike Lindell saying Trump is going to tell people to march and it can't get out. So there's this element of a hidden conspiracy. I have to say that I would have been skeptical of looking at seditious conspiracy and Trump even before these hearings began. Increasingly, though, it looks to me like DOJ has some obligation to investigate that, right? Yes. And in fact, you know, I know there are a lot of commentators out there saying that, where's DOJ? They're not doing anything. And, you know, I disagree. And this idea that, you know, you build up from the bottom and maybe that's the wrong approach here. I think it's exactly the right approach here. They've already got an indictment against Oath Keepers and Proud Boys for seditious conspiracy because that is sort of the low-hanging fruit. You know, they know that that happened. But now they are 
possibly tying Trump into that or some of his key advisors into that. And as you say, you don't have to rely solely on his speech, which could be seen as a political speech, but all of this plotting to deliberately weaponize the crowd, I think, could constitute an agreement to use force to delay the execution of the laws of the United States. And so one thing I know that they're they're looking at is they have the phones of all of these people, Ali Alexander, Stuart Rhodes, Enrique Terrio. And if they have their phones, they can look at text messages. They can get even encrypted chats if they have the phones, unless they were erased. We also heard at the last hearing that some of these folks were participating in this Friends of Stone chat group. You know, people say all kinds of things on chat groups. Do they tie the attack back to the Willard Hotel war room. And so I think this is some very fertile ground for DOJ to investigate. And even if DOJ would not have been inclined to do so before, I think now that we've seen all of this before our eyes from the committee, it's got to give them the impetus to do it. I know they never want to appear that they are targeting anyone for political reasons, but here I think we've got conduct that screams for investigation. You know, something that I think it's worth reminding folks of is that in these hearings, there's no cross-examination of witnesses, right? So if there were actually a trial and DOJ had to put, say, Cassidy Hutchinson on the witness stand, she would be vigorously cross-examined. And so as a prosecutor putting a case together, leaving aside the whole jury of the court of public opinion aside for the minute, if I'm a prosecutor... I need to think very carefully about how her testimony holds up. And something that I've thought about that I wonder if you share my concern is that when she relays the awareness Trump had that there were weapons in the crowd, it's of course hearsay. She's talking about conversations other people had with Trump. But that's not something that that you can't get around as a prosecutor, either by getting the direct witness or by looking for a hearsay exception in this case to say that, you know, she's not offering the evidence to prove the truth of the matter asserted, but to show what Trump did next, as prosecutors often do. But, but here's my question, Barb. Her testimony, and this wasn't in hearing seven, obviously, this goes back to hearing six, was that Trump was advised that there were some weapons in the crowd. And is, is that enough? Do you need to know more about what Trump was advised to put this sort of seditious conspiracy investigation together? Or do you think it's enough to know that Trump was trying to exhort the crowd towards the Capitol? I think you need to put, put together evidence that he was intending— so if, for seditious conspiracy, f- for them to use violence. And I, but I also think this evidence is useful— in a charge of obstructing an official proceeding, because even if you don't want them to hurt anybody, just walking into the building, he knew it evacuated. And so that could be enough. You know, I think the defense you have to worry about and on cross-examination and other things is, isn't it possible he simply wanted to incite the crowd to go protest loudly outside the Capitol to make their voices heard? And I think that's the other side of the equation here that you have to look at. But I think some of the evidence they have already revealed tends to negate that, like the message that you just pointed to from Kylie Jane Kramer about how there was going to be the second rally at the Supreme Court, but Trump was going to call for it, quote, unexpectedly. And she even put that in quotes, unexpectedly, to suggest that that was a nefarious thing. And then, you know, Bannon with the all hell's going to break loose. We know he talked to Trump both on the morning of January 5th and in the evening of January 5th. And in between, he recorded that podcast where he said, all hell's going to break loose tomorrow. We know Mark Meadows said to Cassidy Hutchinson, words to the effect of, 
it's going to get bad on January 6th, Cass, real bad. You know, what, what was he talking about? And then Giuliani, remember that weird statement right at the beginning of Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony? The first thing she testified about was how she escorted Rudy to the car. I love how everyone has to escort Rudy out, like, so he doesn't come back in. Like, make sure <laughs> make sure he gets in his car, whatever you do. You know, she gets the short straw, like, put Rudy in his car. She takes him out and he says, oh, Cass, can you wait until January 6th? Isn't it going to be great? And she says, well, what do you mean, Rudy? And he says, oh, President Trump's going to go to the Capitol. He's going to be there with the members and with the senators, and he's going to look so strong. It's going to be so great. So there really is a lot of hint that there is something going on here beyond just a peaceful protest at the Capitol, but, you know, a, a physical attack, a, a physical appearance at the Capitol. So I don't know that they're there yet, but I think they're putting together pieces from which already we have a circumstantial case. And I think you could really blow it open by getting the phones of some of these people. And it may be the DOJ has it already. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And this is why prosecutors love timelines so much, right? The Bannon call, his first call with Trump on, on January 5th is at 8.57 in the morning. They talk for 11 minutes, so it's not just a hey-howdy sort of a call. And that's the point at which Bannon talks on his podcast about all converging on the point of attack, the all hell is going to break loose tomorrow sort of comments. The other thing that fascinates me on this timeline is the edits to Trump's speech on the ellipse, where he increasingly calls for fighting and the targeting of Mike Pence and the White House counsel wants to take the lines about Pence out of the speech, and Trump personally puts them back in. So lots of evidence for DOJ to take a, a look at here. I thought Liz Cheney did something really interesting in this hearing. She really gets her shots in, and she has this characterization of Trump because she, she says, okay, these hearings are going really well, and people on Team Trump are now trying to say that he was just misled by people around him. And she very forcefully rejects that. She says, The strategy is to blame people his advisors called, quote, the crazies for what Donald Trump did. This, of course, is nonsense. President Trump is a 76-year-old man. He is not an impressionable child. Just like everyone else in our country, he is responsible for his own actions and his own choices. Do you think this characterization is is helpful if we're talking about influencing the court of public opinion? Yes, I think she's done an excellent job of some of the framing here. So not only that, that, you know, oh, Trump was just so naive and impressionable that he was snowed by all of these uh, zealous advisors. You know, that's hogwash. But the other thing I'm hearing her say in all of these hearings lately is really interesting. And Joyce, I'm sure you've encountered this before. She is talking to the base. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who've chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work.